Bella Kovacs mentioned to me that didn't Cato start in San Francisco? And it, it did in 1977. And when it moved to Washington, D.C. in the early 80s, there were only three employees who moved with it. One was Ed Crane, founder. One was David Lampo, who retired a couple of years ago after 35 years with Cato. And the other was David Bowes. So David Bowes has been with Cato for 39 of its 42 years. He has dedicated his career to advancing liberty and to building Cato into the important intellectual and philosophical organization that it is today. In fact, he's dedicated his life to liberty. <clears throat> I was uh, amused in the last year or so when a couple of times people have mentioned to me, you know, we always used to think of libertarians as extreme, but you guys seem like the reasonable ones now. The other thing I heard that I'm very proud of is you also now hear people say, hey, we have to discuss all three perspectives, you know, progressive, conservative, and libertarian. And I think that David Bowes and Ed Crane are the two MVPs of making that happen, of mainstreaming libertarianism and making it a legitimate political philosophy that's taken seriously in the United States. David is the chief intellectual officer of, uh, he's the executive vice president, but I think of him as a chief intellectual officer. I would encourage a couple of copies left. His book, The Libertarian Mind, is, uh, is very important. It's a summary of what we see as kind of the Cato philosophy. Cato actually doesn't have a philosophy. The individuals who work at Cato do. And we disagree on some things, but I think most people at Cato would agree with almost everything that's in this book and see this as a great articulation of our point of view. I also love to give this book to people uh, because I defy them to, to quibble with the things that are, that are in here. Um, and people sometimes tell me, yeah, aren't libertarians extreme? And I say, read this book and you tell me what you think. Uh, to defend civil liberties, to have a more modest foreign policy, to protect, to defend free enterprise to uh, advocate for social tolerance, those things don't seem extreme to us. David is also the chief quality officer. Uh, Cato has an outstanding reputation for integrity, principle, independence, and the quality of its scholarship. And all of those things um, owe a, a, a really a result of uh, David's efforts over the decades and his uh, stewardship of, uh, of Cato. So please join me in offering a welcome to David Bose. Thank you, Peter, and thanks to all of you, especially those of you with the coveted silver name tags that identify you as a Cato sponsor. Uh, we appreciate your support uh, making possible the work that we do. I'm going to start with a question that you probably don't hear very often. Do libertarians run the world? Believe it or not, people have been saying that lately. Um, in its obituary for our late board member, David Koch, the venerable New Republic magazine blamed him for the libertarian radicalization that he had brought upon America. And another left-wing magazine, Salon, uh, blamed him for the libertarian dystopia we now all live in. On the right, there's a new group of big government conservatives who held a whole conference and have now created a new organization devoted 
to saving America from the fiery pits of libertarianism. And when we see these lamentations about libertarians running the world, most of my colleagues roll their eyes and ask, what are they smoking? Because what we see is trillion dollar deficits and two trillion dollars in regulatory costs and endless wars and criminal injustice and how can you think libertarians are running the world? But I've decided on a different response and that is you bet libertarians run the world. I mean we don't run the world because no one can do that. But we did write the basic operating system that the modern world runs on. And that is a darn good thing. More than libertarians often acknowledge, we live in a world of freedom and progress. We have extended the promises of the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to people to whom they had long been denied. Around the world, more people in more countries than ever before in history enjoy religious freedom, personal freedom, democratic governance, the freedom to own and trade property, the chance to start a business, equal rights, civility, respect, and a longer life expectancy. War, disease, violence, slavery, and inhumanity have been dramatically reduced. And it is libertarian ideas and liberty-minded people who have made that happen. For millennia, with few exceptions, the world was marked by despotism, slavery, hierarchy, rigid class privilege, and literally no increase in the standard of living. And then libertarian ideas came into the world. Of course, they weren't called that at the time. They went by different names in different countries. Um, they were called, the, these ideas were called liberal in some countries, liberales in Spain compared to serviles, those who supported the servility to the state, um, Whig ideas in some uh, parts of England. But they were the ideas of human rights, markets, property rights, religious toleration, the value of commerce, the dignity of the individual, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, peace, and human flourishing. And all of that, that change in ideas, brought about what the great economic historian Deirdre McCloskey calls the great fact of human history. And she capitalizes great fact or sometimes great enrichment, <clears throat> because she says, this is the greatest fact in human history since we stopped being nomads and settled down and started farming about 7,000 years ago. And the great fact of human history then is the enormous and unprecedented growth in living standards that started in Northwestern Europe about 1800. I don't know if you've ever seen the hockey stick of economic growth or the hockey stick of GDP per capita, standard of living, whatever you call it. But the reason it's called a hockey stick is that starting in the year one or probably in the year 10,000 BC, the, the graph of growth in average person's standard of living looks like this. It's flat for thousands of years. And then around 1800 in the Netherlands and England, it turns up. And around that time also in the eastern seaboard of North America. 
And it goes like this. Incredible growth. And unfortunately, that line continues well past 1800 in much of the world. In China, it turned up around 1980, and it's gone up a lot since then. That growth in living standards had never been seen in history, and certainly not the sustained growth. There were moments, classical Greece, Rome, a few other places, but sustained year after year, decade after decade, improvement in life never seen before. The ideas that gave birth to that spread to more aspects of life and more parts of the world. They gave Europe a century of peace and progress, often defined as from the defeat of Napoleon in 1815 to the outbreak of war in 1914. The great fact spread from Northwestern Europe and America to the rest of Europe, to Latin America, to parts of Asia. And of course, these libertarian ideas were never perfectly realized. When they faded in the late 19th century, the period before 1914, we got World War I, the Great Depression, and World War II. Some countries endured the horrors of National Socialism and Communism. In our own time, still, mercantilism, cronyism, bigotry and discrimination, political murders, authoritarianism have plagued parts of the world. And even in our own country, in my own lifetime, we lived with 90% income tax rates, wage and price controls, restricted entry to numerous industries, indecency laws, Jim Crow, and military conscription. Once in a while, I have a Cato intern, about 19 years old, say to me, we're losing all our freedoms. And many of you, can anticipate what I'm going to respond to that intern. When I was 19, I was worried about being drafted and sent to Vietnam. You're not. That's a huge increase in freedom. And I'll just say as a little side note, those of you your late 60s, early 70s, remember the draft lottery. They, they were going to rationalize the draft, do it on a lottery system. And those of us who are that age, Remember 1992, when a presidential candidate named Bill Clinton was revealed to have written an insulting letter to his county draft board chairman three days after the, he got his draft lottery number. And he said, when this was pointed out, oh, I didn't know what my draft lottery number was at the time. A whole generation of American men at that moment knew that Bill Clinton was not a reliable narrator of his own life because none of us did not know our draft lottery number the day it happened. In my dormitory, we all sat in the hall with the radio on, listening for the numbers to be drawn. It's not very smart, it was not very smart then, to write an insulting letter to the chairman of your county draft board. But it was a lot safer to do after you got a draft lottery number of around 200 than it would have been before you knew your lottery number. So all of those things that I was listing, we don't have anymore. Progress has been happening. We're still working on making more progress. After World War II, a renewed commitment to free trade, the international rule of law, and constitutional liberal democracy 
brought about another long period of great power, peace, and prosperity, and the spread of property rights and market institutions to China, India, Latin America, and lately even Africa has helped to bring more than one and a quarter billion people out of poverty in the past 25 years. That's the radical progress that we're seeing in the world today. That's what we mean by globalization. That's what has brought a billion people uh, out of extreme poverty. Deirdre McCloskey estimates that per capita GDP has increased by 30 times over two centuries. Now, it's a hard thing to imagine a 3,000% increase in the standard of living. How do you measure that? You can't measure it by bigger televisions. They didn't have television. You can't measure it even by how hot the water, you know, how hot your water is. Didn't have hot water back then, or, or at least not running hot water. Um, I told the story yesterday. Think about our greatest Americans, Benjamin Franklin and John Adams, going on a diplomatic mission to Canada during the war. How did they get to Canada? They either rode horses or they rode in a bumpy carriage. And where did they stay along the way? They stopped wherever there was some rustic inn. These days, we think a rustic inn sounds nice. If you could see an actual rustic inn, you wouldn't want to stay there. And they surely slept in the same bed, probably a bed that had one or two other men in it as well. Not that they weren't well off, but that's the level of wealth in the world at the time. I think of a couple of other stories. I went to Vanderbilt University, so one of my hobbies is visiting Vanderbilt mansions. And if you go to Asheville, North Carolina, you see the biggest Vanderbilt mansion of them all called Biltmore, built by George Vanderbilt, a grandson of the Commodore. He only managed to live in it a few years, though, because he got, I think it was an abscessed tooth when he was about 50 years old, and he died. He was one of the richest men in the world, but an abscessed tooth killed him. Uh, 25 years after that, the teenage son of President Calvin Coolidge was playing tennis on the White House tennis court, and he got a blister on his foot, and it got infected. And the health care available to the President of the United States and his family was not sufficient to keep the President's teenage son from dying of an infected blister. This was a a great tragedy for Coolidge. He wrote about it in his autobiography. He said, if I had not been president, he wouldn't have been playing tennis that day on that court, and he wouldn't have died. That's certainly true, but the other way to look at it for our purpose is, that's how poor people were 100 years ago. That's what we mean when we say our standard of living is 30 times what it was for our ancestors in 1800. And currently, yes, there are plenty of problems in the world. Poverty still exists. There was a financial crash in 2008. There may be another one right now. AIDS and coronavirus and environmental issues and hate, all of those things are real. But the Economic Freedom of the World Report shows economic freedom increasing globally since 1980, which is as far back as they've really been able to measure it. In addition, and Partly as a result of that, great increases in world trade, women's rights, gay rights, 
lots of areas of freedom, and it was libertarian ideas and libertarian policies that brought that about. And so I'm happy to say, yes, libertarians have been running the world and we'll take credit for that progress. But nothing is guaranteed. As T.S. Eliot said, there is no such thing as a lost cause because there is no such thing as a gained cause. Nothing is ever sure. Ideas we thought were dead are back. Socialism, protectionism, ethnic nationalism, anti-Semitism, even for God's sake, industrial policy. The idea that bureaucrats in Washington would have a better sense of where money should be invested in which industries and which companies than thousands and millions of individual investors, each one trying to find the winning strategy for himself, his business, his family. Conservatives are now embracing this kind of industrial policy, and that's why our job is not done. We're seeing a rise of illiberalism on both the left and the right with threats to liberty, democracy, trade, growth, and peace. And so it remains to us, people who understand these ideas, to defend the constitutional order of our republic, to remind people over and over of the wonders that America and the capitalist system have produced, how rare freedom and abundance have been in the world, and the rules that are essential to their continuance. And when I do this, I remember an article Milton Friedman wrote in 1984 when National Review asked him to respond to a conservative case for tariffs. And as you read this article, you can just feel Friedman saying, I can't believe we have to go over this again. We have known theoretically, scientifically since 1776 that tariffs hurt people hurt the economy, and that free trade is what makes societies wealthy. And we now have, which Adam Smith had less of, we now have empirical evidence. We can look at countries that were closed, and we can look at countries that had open trade, and we can see which ones did well. The most closed trade economy in the world, of course, is North Korea, not doing well. There have been others that tried that strategy. The countries that have open trade, they're the ones people want to live in. They're the ones that people prosper in. But here we are. All the bad new ideas are actually bad old ideas. Libertarians and classical liberals have been fighting them off for more than 200 years, and we'll keep doing it. And as both the right and the left here and abroad seem to be moving in the wrong directions, maybe we can play a role in strengthening a libertarian center, and people rarely think of libertarians as moderates or centrists, but we've written a few times about a libertarian center in American politics of people, you might say, people who would call themselves fiscally conservative and socially tolerant, people who would say taxes are too high and I don't care who you marry or what you smoke. Those people, I think, are really the center of American politics, and I think they're a plurality of American politics, and yet, in both political parties, they seem to lose out to extremes of people on one side or another who do 
want to regulate who you can marry and what you can smoke, want to raise your taxes, want to regulate your business. There are different kinds of the illiberal ideas on both sides. And as the two parties become more polarized, usually in the wrong ways, Democrats becoming more tax and transfer, tax and spending, and even more socialist, and Republican politicians, I fear, becoming more nationalist and more protectionist, libertarians may well find themselves in the real center of people who believe in an open society and an open economy. Around the world with left-wing autocrats and ethnic nationalist autocrats vying for power, classical liberals defend the broad center of peaceful and productive people in a society of liberty under law. Libertarians are needed now more than ever. We've been fighting ignorance, superstition, privilege, and power for centuries. And what we sometimes forget is that when you look at the big picture, we've been winning that fight. We have reduced ignorance, superstition, privilege, and power. I was asked once by some skeptics, what's the most important libertarian accomplishment ever? And I thought for a moment and said, the abolition of slavery. They said, okay, name another. <laughs> I thought the abolition of slavery was pretty good. I thought if you had the abolition of slavery on your resume, you were prepared to meet your maker. But they said, name another. So I thought a little more carefully and I said, bringing power under the rule of law. That's what all these things are really about. In every society, there are people who want power, who strive for it, who want to use that power to run other people's lives. And progress, I was going to say progress toward, but progress, progress toward civilization is bringing that power under the rule of law. We can't ever completely eliminate power. But what was the Constitution about? It was about constraining men who desire power. They had seen monarchies. They had seen autocrats in their history books about Greece and Rome. They knew what they didn't want. They want and they also worried about mobocracy. So they weren't for pure democracy. They were for constraining the power of the mob, of the people, for constraining the power of the president, for constraining the power of the new Congress that they were creating, for constraining the power of the federal government. They wanted to give the federal government very limited powers to protect freedom. And if you take out your pocket constitution and look at Article 1, Section 8, they list the powers they were giving to the federal government, and they're pretty limited. So bringing power under the rule of law, it's what libertarian friends of ours are fighting for in China and Saudi Arabia and Turkey and Hungary and Mexico here in the United States. Sometimes I say, although this may be coming a dim memory, it's what Rand Paul filibustered for. Remember when Rand Paul spoke for 13 straight hours on the floor of the Senate? What was he speaking about? He was asking that the President of the United States sign a statement that he would not use drones within the United States against people thought to be a threat. That was all. And eventually, at the end of the evening, he got that statement. That's bringing power under the rule of law. 
We've been winning that battle, but there's still more to be done. The battle's never over, and that's why we're still doing what we're doing, and we appreciate the fact that you are supporting what we're doing. Thank you very much. And now, if anybody has questions, I'm happy to answer them. We'll bring a microphone to you. And if everybody's completely satisfied, then we'll be glad to move on. All right. Hold on, hold, hold on a second. Take this one over here and then come here. David? Okay. You talked about the human progress issue. And I think it'd be good if you explain that a little bit deeper, because I got some guests here who are not Cato members. And I think that this idea about human progress and what Cato is doing to promulgate that is a very important thing, and I'd like you to address it. All right. Thank you. Love that kind of question. Um, I think it's easy for us to see what's wrong in our world. And I do, I do this myself. I, they recently refurbished the mall near my house, and I'm complaining to my partner, everything they changed is worse now. Um, it seems to be crowded, so maybe not everybody agrees with that. Um, and I'm complaining today about the water pressure in my hotel room. And at a larger level, absolutely, coronavirus is a frightening thing, and there is still poverty in the world. But if you look at virtually any measure of human achievement, human satisfaction, the satisfaction of human wants, whether it's GDP per capita, what that can buy, clean air, clean water, life expectancy, all of those things have improved. And we have a website, humanprogress.org, that shows all of this data. It's got hundreds of databases on women's education, deaths in childbirth, um, cancer rates, all of these kinds of things for the whole world. And you can go on there and ask your own question um, and, and get one of these graphs that actually moves as you watch it, and you can see number of, uh, number of girls under 18 who attend school, you see it going up. Deaths in childbirth, you see it going down. And once in a while, somewhere in the world, and certainly under communism and under national socialism, more briefly in Germany, you see definite problems. One of the things that's very interesting in there is deaths by violence. We hear a lot about individual shootings, mass shootings, wars. My God, there are wars going on everywhere, right? I see them on CNN. And yet, if you look at a chart of violent deaths or wars specifically over the past 1,000 years, 500 years, 200 years, it's going down. It's actually becoming a safer world, safer in workplace accidents, safer in war and violence, safer in um, uh, deaths in childbirth, uh, infant deaths, deaths from childhood diseases, automobile accidents, all those things going down. So that's progress. And one of the ways that we're also looking at that, well, two of the ways, we have this report, The Economic Freedom of the World, that every year studies the laws regulating the economy in virtually every country in the world. And there are ups and downs in that, but 
it's, we only have good data for 30, 40 years, so that's not a very long period. And the general trend has been positive, especially in places like China and India, which have about a third of the world's population. Um, and also an, a, a broader book called the Human Freedom Index, which measures not just economic freedom, but women's rights, gay rights, political freedom, personal freedom, freedom to own guns. Well, it doesn't have guns because there's no good international database of that, but things like that. Um, also generally going up, and so that's also an indication of progress, and that again is fairly short-term progress, 30 or 40 years. The Human Progress website often has data going back much farther than that. Right here, right here please. I, I, then we'll come back there. That was such a wonderful perspective. I'm wondering if that uh, talk is available online or in print somewhere. Uh, is this talk available online or anything? No, I don't think so, um, although I think we have recorded it a couple of times, so it's possible that we will put it online. Um, I have written about this in various places to some extent in my book. Um, I did an article called Are We Freer for Cato a few years ago, and that would get some of it. Um, so yes, the themes are available, but I'm not sure this particular talk is. I think that one of the um, biggest threats to individual rights here and really around the world, but particularly here, is the uh, matter of autonomous agencies that have their own control. I'm thinking specifically the Federal Reserve Bank, which is now promoting zero and even negative interest rates, banning cash bank bail-ins and things like that. All of those things are serious threats to our, not only our financial well-being, but our individual rights. How do you suggest we deal with that? Well, uh, that's an issue. We tried to deal with it by writing a constitution that didn't give government a lot of that power. And then some people didn't think that was good enough, so they demanded a Bill of Rights. And we wrote a Bill of Rights that protected a lot of those things. Um, and then, just in case enumerating the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, the Third Amendment, the Fourth Amendment was not good enough, we wrote the Ninth Amendment that said anything we didn't mention in here or, or, or give to the federal government remains with the states or the people, and the, uh, no, the Ninth Amendment is uh, rights retained by the people, Tenth Amendment reserves the powers to the states that are not granted to the federal government. So in my view, a lot of the things federal government doing, is doing is not authorized in the Constitution. We have a Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives that is working on trying first to constrain the Federal Reserve's new powers and in the long run to talk about ways that we could have a functioning money and banking system without a central bank that has the kind of control this one does. Um, I also have a colleague, Will Yateman, um, whose focus is the administrative state and how do we bring all of these administrative agencies under control. One answer to that is courts should be skeptical of agencies exceeding the powers that Congress has granted them. And then the next step, of course, is to try to persuade Congress to rein in these agencies or even abolish some of them. You know. Way back in the Carter days, 
they abolished the Civil Aeronautics Board and the Interstate Commerce Commission because you got some left-right synthesis there on getting rid of these agencies. And then under Reagan, they abolished a tiny agency, the Council on Wage and Price Stability, that had been enforcing the price controls ever since Nixon. And I had a friend who was a Reaganite, but not so much a, a big thinker or an ideologue. He was a manager. And one of his jobs in the Reagan administration was to shut down the Council on Wage and Price Stability. And so when he was told to do this, he said, okay, is there a manual on how to shut down a federal agency? It turns out, he said, no, there wasn't. They, didn't, they don't ever do it, so they didn't even know. He said, who do I give the keys to? Nobody knew. So he managed to get it done, and then he came to me after he was out of the government and said, I would like to write a manual on how to shut down a federal agency. I said, okay, we usually talk about why to shut down a federal agency, but that would be interesting. I will publish that. And then every couple of years, I would call him and say, how are you coming on that manual? And he would say, oh, well, you know, this president's not going to shut down any federal agency, so I don't feel any rush. <laughs> then the next president, he's not going to shut anything down. So eventually he never did it. Um, he is back in the uh, Labor Department again in this administration, and he claims to be at least deregulating some things, if not actually shutting down any agencies. So the answer is keep making the case, making the case better, doing better marketing and promotion of that case, and looking for particular points of pressure like issues that are ripe for judicial intervention or issues that you could actually get Congress to pay attention to. Um, but the administrative state is a big thing, and it has its own interests, and it's very well networked in Washington, so it's a difficult thing to shut down. Thank you all for your attention. Appreciate your being here.